How's everybody doing tonight? Okay, I'm Dan Callahan. I have the privilege of uh, opening this up in prayer, introduction, uh, about our spiritual war conference. And you know, if we, especially the nowadays we're living in, we need to learn how to battle and do spiritual war. Amen? And that's what this is all about. So Lord, we just thank you tonight. We just lift you up, Lord. That you would have your way in this spiritual war conference. We pray you'll speak through the, the different speakers and the praise and worship and and anything, Lord, that comes, Lord, that in our whole purpose, Lord, is to lift Jesus Christ up so that he could draw people to himself. And you can teach us how to use the great weapons of war that you have given us to our hands that we can learn about those weapons tonight and tomorrow. And so we just thank you, Lord, that you would just put your blessings. We give the Holy Spirit complete control to come and move as he pleases, Lord. This is your night, and we just commit it to you. And we ask this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so the two speakers tonight are going to be, uh, okay. Yeah, Mitch is the first speaker. We'll be at after the... Uh, Worship that'll be at six twenty on origins of battle, and then uh, Brent will follow with the sermon in the battle. So, right now we're going to have a time of praise and worship. So, thank you. Lord of all creation, of water, earth, and sky, the heavens are your tabernacle, glory to the Lord on high, the God of wonders beyond our galaxy, you are holy. Holy, the universe declares your majesty. You are holy, holy, Lord of heaven and earth. Lord of heaven and earth.
early in the morning I will celebrate the light When I stumble in the darkness I will call your name by night The God of wonders beyond our galaxy You are holy Holy, the universe declares your majesty. You are holy, holy, Lord of heaven and earth. Lord of heaven and earth. Hallelujah to the Lord of heaven and earth. Hallelujah to the Lord of heaven and earth. Hallelujah to the Lord of heaven and earth. You are the God of wonders beyond our galaxy. You are holy, holy, the universe declares your majesty. You are holy, holy, Lord of heaven and earth, Lord Mitch come forward and give his talk this morning. Let's all creatures of our God and King offer praise to the Lord tonight. of our God and King Lift up your voice and with the sing Oh, praise Him Alleluia Thou burning sun with golden beam Thou silver moon with softer gleam Oh, praise Him, oh, praise Him, Alleluia, Alleluia, Alleluia. Thou rushing wind that art so strong, Clouds that sail in heaven along. Oh, praise Him. Alleluia. 
lights at evening find a voice. Oh, praise Him. Oh, praise Him. Alleluia. Alleluia. Everybody's kind of confused. Is this morning or is it evening? Are you seeing you guys, you know, in the morning? What, what's happened? What's changed? <laughs> something's wrong. <clears throat> yeah, if something's wrong, it's just me. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah, I know you know it. I heard you. <laughs> All right. Well. I am so grateful that God allowed us to do this spiritual warfare conference again this year. Uh, you know, it was such a, a, a blessing last year. Uh, and uh, so I'm grateful for each and every one that uh, was able to make it out tonight. And I hope that you can bring uh, some folks and come back in the morning as we continue on. But I get the... Uh, the privilege of being the first speaker this year uh, and speaking on the origins of the battle. Where did this thing begin? How did we get the devil? How did we get evil into the world? 
So that's kind of what we're going to be looking at. And I've got five scriptures that I want to read, and then hopefully, with the help of the Holy Spirit, I can kind of tie them together and, and come up with some kind of uh, uh, a, a message that makes sense and is congruent. So we're going to begin in Ezekiel chapter 28. I'm going to read 11 through 19 of Ezekiel chapter 28. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, take up a lament concerning the king of Tyre and say to him, this is what the sovereign Lord says. You were the model of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Now, if this was a literal king, okay, and only about a literal king, why would it say you were in Eden? It says, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you, ruby, topaz, and emerald, chrysolite, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and beryl. Your settings and mountings were made of gold. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed as a guardian cherub. For so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. Through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God, and I expelled you, O guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty, and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth. I made a spectacle of you before kings. By your many sins and dishonest trade, you have desecrated Your sanctuaries. So I made a fire come out from you, and it consumed you, and I reduced you to ashes on the ground in the sight of all who were watching. All the nations who knew you are appalled at you. You have come to a horrible end and will be no more. Now, I think there's kind of a blend in there of. Uh, part is, is for a physical, literal king and kingdom, and the rest applies to uh, Satan, or some like to say Lucifer. Uh, and so in this, I think we can find uh, some of the basis for what happened. What happened? You know, it, it implies and even says that in the beginning... This creature was created with all of these jewels, made with these jewels, built into him. And I've heard and read other things where it said that he had pipes built into his, uh, into his windpipe. We would call windpipe, but he had literal pipes where he could, he could play music with his windpipes. And so singing... He literally had the music he made himself as he sang and praised and worshiped God. He made the music along with that. 
he was the most powerful. He was in charge of all of the other angels. He was given the, the, the responsibility to carry the messages from God to the other angels and make sure that God's message got to them, that they understood it, and that they accomplished those things. Now, how, how does an angel who is in a position like that, so close to God, fall? Well, first and foremost, we have to understand that angels, like men, have free will, right? Satan's an angel. He, he fell. He took a third of the angels with him. If they did not have free will, that could not have happened. So they have free will. You can obey. You cannot. There is a clue within this text for us. He says, God says, that because of his beauty, he had too much pride. Too much pride. Too much arrogance. All right. This part about the guardian cherub in the Garden of Eden. Well, we know there was cherubs assigned there with swords, right? But perhaps... This was even another responsibility that he was given to be there to watch over even before man fell. Maybe he was assigned there to watch over the garden, to watch over man, and to try to keep things going the way they should go. Now I'm going to jump to Isaiah chapter 14 and read verses 12 through 15. How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will set enthroned on the mount of assembly. On the utmost heights of the sacred mountain, I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to the grave, to the depths of the pit. Again, I believe this is referring to Lucifer. Lucifer is a word, whether it was his name or not. It's a word that means light bearer. And here he is called morning star, son of of the dawn. So there's a lot here. And once again, we see this fallenness, this fallenness. Man is not the only one who fell. Satan fell first. Now I want to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. And in Genesis chapter 3, I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. Now the serpent, who was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made, he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, 
We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Do you know how many people are still trying to use insufficient fig leaves to cover their sin? (laughs) Just doesn't work, folks. Doesn't work. Only the blood of Christ. Only the blood of Christ. You know, some people are uh, demonized just for that very reason. Because they've never really had the blood of Christ applied to their sins. They said the words, maybe, but they didn't really have it in their heart. They weren't really sincere. You know, yeah, Lord, I'll give you this and I'll give you that and I'll give you the other, but this one thing, I really like that. I'm not going to quit. I'm going to hold on to this. I'm going to hold on to this because this is so much fun. I like it. You can't have that one yet. Mm -hmm. It's all it takes, folks. It's all it takes. So here in the fall, the story of the fall of man, you know, the the, uh, serpent, the dragon, the snake, is already here. Wait a minute. Wasn't there a cherub there that was supposed to be guarding us and stopping this from happening? Hmm. wonder what happened. Well, could it be that that same cherub is the serpent? Is that a possibility? Who knows? Maybe we can figure it out. Now we're going to go to Genesis 6, 1 through 7. When men began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Now, you've got to think and remember that here the word married is used very, very loosely. <laughs> uh, sometimes it had nothing to do with a ceremony. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. When the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them, they were the heroes of old, men of renown. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness was on the earth and how it how how wicked it had become, and that everyone had the inclination of his thoughts, of his heart, was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind who I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. 
thank God, at least someone was faithful. And from Noah begins all over again. Why? Because evil had run rampant. One sin leads to another. You know, I can remember just plain as day something my mom used to tell us all all the time, me and my brothers and my sister. You know, you, you tell one lie, and then you have to tell another lie to cover up that lie. Then you have to tell another lie to cover up that lie. Well, it don't matter what sin you do, folks. It's the same. You end up trying to hide it. You work harder at hiding it than you would if you just confessed it, told the truth, and got over it. And not only that, but it makes you miserable every time you lie. It makes you more miserable, more miserable, until you get so good at it and you get so used to it that your conscience becomes seared and it doesn't bother you anymore. Now you can just lie freely and don't bother you at all. I hope no one in this room is at that place right now. Because if you are, you definitely need to get right with God. And the last scripture I want to look at is in Genesis 11, verses 1 through 4. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches up to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves, not God, and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth, as God had said for them to do. So when we look at these scriptures and we look at them in this order, we can see there's kind of a, uh, a pattern here. There's kind of a pattern. There, there's this thing going on. Now, it begins, you know, back where we started with the, the story of Satan now, uh, or Lucifer, whatever you want to call him. But uh, we're told a little bit about him. He's described in his beauty and his splendor, but he gave all that up. Now he's the most ugly creature, uh, at least spiritually, that ever existed. Now he can still appear as a thing of beauty, and that's what gets so many people in trouble. But, you know, it doesn't specifically tell us when he fell. Now, here's a theory. That's all this is, folks. I'm not saying this is Bible because it is not. This is my theory, and it's based on studies like Dr. Michael Hauser and some others. But I believe that it can be shown at least to some degree, okay, that that fall did not take place until after the creation of man. But right before, right before the, uh, the fall of man, I believe sometime very near that point is where Satan fell. Dr. Heiser has an interesting theory. His theory is Satan was so proud of himself He was the crowning jewel to that point of creation. 
He was the one who was so close to God, he got most of God's attention. God tell him what to tell all the other angels. And so then all of a sudden, here comes this thing called man. And God was giving man so much attention. And he became a little bit jealous of this attention that man was getting. And so possibly he thought of a way that he could get rid of man and get back into being number one with the Lord God again. And so he thought, how can I do this? Well, I'll show God. I will tempt them to sin. I'll tempt them to disobey the Father, and then he'll just destroy them and get rid of them, and everything will go back to the way it was. Now, I don't know about you, but to me, that sounds like your typical... uh, Uh, church business meeting. Um, (laughs) uh, Anyway. uh, (laughs) So, but you see the, you you, you can see there that this is a possibility. It's not factual. It may not be actual. It may not be correct, but it is one possibility. Okay? And if then... That was true. And if then, out of jealousy, out of him uh, being uh, jealous of man and trying to get rid of man so that he can have his place back with the Lord God, and he then tempts Eve to eat of the tree. Now, what do we see when the temptation takes place? The lust of the flesh... The lust of the eyes and the pride of life. Those are the things that's used over and over and over, folks. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That's what was used against Jesus himself. That's what was used in the garden. And on top of that, we see that part of that pride was to become like God. What did Lucifer say he wanted to be? He wanted to be like God. In fact, he wanted to bump God off and take his place. He wanted to be God. Now, he hadn't perhaps got to that point yet. He may not have progressed to that point yet, but after he got Adam and Eve to sin, and then God forgave them, that added to his fury. He was more angry. He was more upset. And so then we see that later on, he gets some of his buddies, they come back, he gets them to come with him, they decide they're going to come to earth and they're going to have relations with women, human women, and create this this mutant breed of people called Nephilim. They're mutant because they're half supernatural and half natural. They are half angel and half human. This, I believe, folks, is the origination of the Greek uh, stories, uh, the Greek mythological stories, where you got all of these gods and sons of the gods because in some places the angels are referred to as gods and sons of God over and over and over so they come up with this plan. I, I can, you know, I can kind of visualize this and hear it and play it in my head that Satan comes up and he's got certain of his buddies 
angels that he comes up to and he says, hey, you know, I tried to make them fall. And, uh, you know, the father, he just forgave them. So we're going to have to do something else. You guys up for this? We got to get rid of these things called man. We got to get rid of them because they're getting all of our glory. They're getting all of our blessings. They're getting everything that we are supposed to, we're supposed to have. He's, he's spending more time with them now than he is with us. Oh, yeah. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. So they come up with this plan. Now, here's something else. We call Jesus God incarnate, right? Well, what would you call an offspring of Satan with a human being? Would you call that Satan incarnate? Oh, yeah, we would. That's exactly Satan was trying to beat God to the punch, and he was trying to pervert anything and everything that God had done to this point because you remember what God said in the garden. He gave, in Genesis 3, verse 15, he gave the first prophecy of the Messiah to come. And Satan heard that. And he's like, "Uh uh-uh, we're going to stop this. I'm going to turn every human being, I'm going to have some of my DNA in every one of them. And then you can't have your son to come from that lineage. That's what I think. That's what I think. Now, again, after, after the Nephilim are created, you know, if, if you read some of the other books that are not in the Scripture, but they are uh, books of, of, of the Bible uh, in some versions, but uh, they talk about this. They talk about how, uh, how these creatures that were half human and and half angel, they had knowledge that men was not supposed to have at this point. They taught men how to do things that God wouldn't approve of. They taught men how to do things. For example, technology. They gave man technology way ahead of their time. And God just... He, he watched and, and, and watched, and he finally said, okay, that's enough. Then came the flood. He said, all men had become corrupt. All men were evil, only evil, all the time. Why? Because they are following these false gods. They're following these Nephilim and these fallen angels. And for those of you who may or may not know this, the Nephilim were considered to be creatures that were probably eight, nine, ten feet tall. They often would eat human flesh. The Indians in Indiana, Ohio, Illinois, Mexico, Peru, all around the, all around the globe, they all have stories of creatures that came that were nine, ten, eleven feet tall, that if you didn't do what they said, they would eat you. They had six fingers and six toes on each hand and each foot. Folks, at the Smithsonian, they have put away in the back someplace, they have many, many, many skeletons that are huge, giants. Six hands, uh, six fingers on each hand, six toes on each foot. 
because I have read it, and there are pictures of it. That's how I know. (laughs) It is factual. It's documented. It's not some made-up story. These things are true. People have studied. People have documented it. People have taken pictures. People have traced it and tracked it, and it's just real. And now then, we see another progression. After God then had flooded the earth, and then we find one man, Noah and his family, who were still righteous, who were still worshiping the true and loving God. And he received the grace of God. God used him to preserve all mankind. And then after the flood, just not many years down the road, all of a sudden we come to the Tower of Babel. Once again, once again we find that there is another another sinful event that happens that involves most of mankind. They are together in one place. They speak one language. And, and they, are, they have decided among themselves. They didn't ask God, should we do this? They didn't ask God, is this what you want for us? In fact, they knew that God had told them to spread. God told Noah when he got off the ark to replenish the earth and to spread out. And so now they're saying, no, we're not going to do that. We're all going to live in harmony and we're going to live together and we're going to make one world government and we're all going to be right here. We're going to build us a tower and we're going to knock God off the throne and we're going to take his place. Now that's basically what their attitude is here, folks. That's what their, that's what their mindset is. That's what they're doing. It's all about rebellion against the true and living God. Who do you think's behind that? It ain't Jesus, I can tell you that. (laughs) He is, this evil is so good that the devil is so good and so convincing sometimes that we have to stop and think, is this right or is this wrong? Because he's so good at his job. Think of the thousands of years of practice he's had. He's very good at what he does. And what he does is he lies, he kills, he steals, he destroys, he's a murderer, he's a father of all liars. I mean, he's good. He's good. So then at the Tower of Babel, they do this, and now what Dr. Heiser's uh, theory is, and I find it very interesting, whether it's actual, factual, I don't know, but it's an interesting thought. He says that in the original language, which I'm trying to learn, but haven't got there completely yet. Uh, but he says there in, uh, in, in Deuteronomy, when, when the nations split up, and even back all the way back there uh, in, in, at the Tower of Babel, when they split up, that God divided all the nations. At that point, God said, okay, you all want to worship these false gods? Go for it. Go for it. I'll just turn you all over to all these false gods since that's who you want. There you go. And then comes Abraham. Abraham was a man that God found that was faithful. And he chose him. And what was the first covenant 
that God made with Abraham. I will make a nation of you. So God has chosen someone to start over with. He's saying, okay, you're all out. You're in. You come on. I'll make a nation from you. And through you, all nations on the earth will be blessed. Amen? Amen. Now, how did that take place? Through Jesus Christ who came from the lineage. You know, when, when you stop and you think about all of this, how it all comes together, how it all, you, you know, if, if, if Dr. Heiser is correct, and I don't know, again, if he is or not, but I like the, I like the premise, and I can follow it easily and understand it easily, and I'm simple-minded. Maybe that's why I like it. But anyway, it, is, it makes sense. It makes sense. Satan is, is upset. He's lost his place. He wants it. This is the origin of the spiritual warfare. Satan still hates mankind. He hates us because God created us and robbed him of his place and his position with God. So anything he can do to disrupt our happiness and our joy in Christ, anything that he can do because God made us different and special. God made us in his own image. God made us separate and God sent his son not to die for angels and that they could be saved. No, he died for mankind, for you and for me so that we could be saved. We are the only creatures on earth that have that blessing. We are the only ones who he died for. We are the only ones who he came to restore back to having a relationship with himself. We are the only ones. He loves us so much that he was willing to give his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That is the beauty of the spiritual battle is that... When he sent Jesus, and even before he sent Jesus, he gave us the means to have victory over the devil. He empowered his disciples. He gave them authority over the demons. He gave them authority. Folks, what are you and me? We are disciples of Jesus Christ. He has given us authority over the demons. He has given us authority. Now, does that mean we can just... Boss them around, tell them to do whatever we want. No, absolutely not. That is not the point. The point is, is that we don't have to allow them to boss us around. We don't have to allow them to cause us to be afraid. We don't have to allow them to cause us to live a life of misery and hurt and pain and anguish because we can tell them in Jesus' name to go back to hell where you belong and leave me alone. I belong to Jesus Christ. I was cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And you have no right, no authority over me. Now, I'm going to let the other speakers tell you about where there's opportunities where there can be authority given to the demons because I'm just talking about the origin. And you know, when Satan, when Satan is mad, you ever seen an outraged toddler? 
I mean, they throw things at you, they spit on you, they scream, they bite you, they kick you, they hit you. Well, Satan's like that, only he's a lot stronger, a lot meanier. He has more weapons at his disposal. Now, you think if all of that does go back to him being jealous when God made man and gave us more, he thought, than he had. You know, he never stopped to think, well, I'm in his presence all the time, and they're not. He never stopped to think about how good he had it. And, you know, when you're thinking like Satan, you don't think about how good you have it. You think about how bad it is, how bad everything is. You don't think about how good you have it. You don't stop to think about how wonderful it is to know that we have the promises of God to live on, that we're going to heaven one day, and that in the meantime, we've been given a blessing to live for him in a way that pleases him, and he has given us his Holy Spirit to enable and empower us so that we can live for him to please him. I mean, wow. God is good. All the time. Amen. I think it's time for uh, uh, Dan, you coming up to tell us what's going on. Yeah. Praise the Lord. It's a time of reflection, you know, and the same traps that Satan fell into, the pride of life, you know, um, I want to be like God. I don't want God to tell me what to do. <laughs> don't we fall into that? Yeah. Or I don't want to confess my sins. We had the habitual sins and we think that's kind of okay with God. It's mm-hmm. not okay with God. So we start doing that, we fall into the same trap. And reason one, one reason why Satan was so angry, when the angels, after they rebelled, they asked God if they could be forgiven. And you know what he told them? No. You were not deceived. You chose to rebel. Mm-hmm. Now, that, and then he, mankind. We get deceived, everything. But we have that blood covenant with the Lord Jesus Christ. But we had to be careful of pride, right? We had to be careful, I want to be like God, mm-hmm. or God's not going to tell me what to do, or having a, a, a sin, a life, a, a living a life that's not pleasing God, because our life is supposed to reflect the glory of Jesus, right? When people see us, they see Jesus. So we're going to reflect on that for a minute. Lord, we thank you. Lord, that you loved us so much that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, down to die for us and empower us with the Holy Spirit and open our eyes up on how to come against Satan who wants to rob Still and destroy. And he still does that. But Lord, the Holy Spirit's more powerful. Help us to always seek you first. Ask for your direction, guidance in our life. 
And when you point something out to us, Lord, help us to come in agreement and confess it so that you can wash us clean with that precious blood of Jesus Christ, Lord. Lord, be with us as we continue. As Brother Brent comes up, after we have a small break. So we thank you, Lord, again for your love. Always causes us to be victorious. And we ask this in Jesus Christ's name, that he might be lifted up and receive all the honor and glory. Amen. Amen. evening and uh, that's a lot better there we go I feel like Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig at the Yankee Stadium oh well as I said my name is Brent Calloway and I consider it an honor to be able to do this uh, conference with Dan and David and Mitch we consider it a privilege to get to serve you in this way that you guys would come uh, but it is an honor that I get to do this um, with you guys and so um I'm going to pray, and we'll dive into the text. We'll read the text first, and then we will pray. And I hope that this evening, as we look at this familiar verse, that perhaps you can glean some new perspectives about this, or maybe even come at it at a different angle, maybe, that we haven't seen before that can be applicable to the topic that I'm talking about this evening, whereas Mitch was the origins of the battle. Mine will be discernment in the battle, discerning what the battle actually is. The text this evening is from Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, which reads like this. We do not wrestle against the flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Heavenly Father, I come to you this evening. It is a great honor and privilege. I'm still amazed that I'm behind a pulpit like this because I never expected this would be something that I would ever do in my life. And so because of that, I don't want to come up here with arrogance and pride, with skill. I want to come up here weak, broken, and having to depend upon you. Because then that makes preaching successful. I'm just your agent, Lord. If, I, if I'm, let me be the ammo upon which you can shoot me out of, Lord, to affect the heart of those who are around you in this room this evening. Father, I pray that there will be anybody in this room this evening that is being affected and tormented by demons, that you would give them a clarity of mind right now to listen. The enemy likes to make us emotionally and physically tired when the word of God is about to be spoken. So I pray against any tiredness. I pray against any distractions of the mind that would keep from listening and wanting to hear what's about to be said. Not because it's me speaking, but because it is your word that we give reference to. I pray, Lord God, if there are any strongholds in our life, God, that you would help give revelation to those this evening. I pray, Lord, that you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, a mind to comprehend, and a heart to apply. Amen. Be exalted this evening. Give me the words now to speak. 
And if there's anything in this message upon which you'll want me to say, then please give me those divine prophetic utterances to speak those to the heart of your people whom you know best and that which needs to be said. So we thank you this evening, and may your presence abide with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Back in the 1500s and several hundred years before that, there was a fierce group of people that lived in the southern part of Mexico and Honduras and those type of places, and they were a very fierce tribe, very well-respected tribe. Most of us probably know about them because we either heard about them in school or you saw them on the History Channel, if you can believe that. But most of them, they were oftentimes infamous for taking people's hearts, sacrificing them when they were alive, and then typically sometimes eating them, or sometimes they would take them and they would throw them down their temple steps as an act of worship to their gods as a human sacrifice. The group of people that I'm talking about was the Mayan Indians. Now, as barbaric as the Mayans were and as fierce as they were, some people think, well, they were just a bunch of ignorant indigenous people that knew nothing. Well, that's not really true because of the fact that they were actually skilled craftsmen. Because if you go over to parts of Mexico today, people still can't figure out exactly how they designed all those temples over there. And still people today go over to those temples and are amazed some, you know, hundreds of years later. If they were that indigenous and that stupid, people wouldn't want to go see the temples that they made. They were excellent in uh, geometry the configurations to make those buildings, the mathematical ways they could figure out things. They had found irrigation systems that were second to none, even better than ours in America, the way that they could, they were people of the land and how they agriculturally used the land, took you know, the, the, the woods and made bows and made arrows, and they did all these things that were pretty mind-boggling in a, in a lot of ways. They, they, were, they, were, they were crafty, they were, they were skilled, they were also very intellectual. They, they, they had found writings and carvings of even an established, organized political system of that day. But even though the Mayans were fierce, dominant, controlling, in a sense people were afraid of them, superior in a lot of ways, that changed in the 1500s when the Spanish came in. Now, when the Spanish came in, they didn't take them overnight. Boom, they're gone. It was a slow inquisition, but eventually it led to the fall of the Mayan civilization. Now, it's interesting. Why, why, would that, why did that happen for? A superior people, strong, powerful, all these kind of things, and then all of a sudden the Spanish come in, and then they fall. Why? Well, I mean, in, in some ways it's because they, they were, there's no way in some ways they, they were less Militarily, I think, I mean, the, the, the Spanish had crossbows. They said they had even some cannons. They had bronze and steel axes and swords. And, you know, the, the Mayans had their bows, their arrows, the things that they could make as best as possible. So I don't think they were quite ready necessarily for the military weaponry that the Spanish had. Not only that, but then the diseases came in. And so you had, like, um, smallpox and different types of fevers that came in that they didn't have any vaccinations for. They didn't even know what it was. And so in some ways that had an effect on the Mayan people. But I think that there's one thing at the beginning that affected the Mayan people in regards to the Spanish that led to their downfall is this. It was a lack of discernment as to who their enemy was. You say, now how, Why? Because when the Spanish came, the Mayans saw something they never saw before. It's called the war horse. The Spanish began to bring the horses over here when they began to fight the Mayans. Here was the problem with the Mayans. They'd never seen a horse before. They thought 
the horse and the rider was the same thing. They didn't know that they were separate. So what happened was, when the, when the Mayans began to come, the Indians were ready, right? They wasn't like they're any less superior or not as, not as fierce as the Spanish, probably even more. But what they did was that they took their arrows and they dug little pits in the, little, in the wooded area and they tried to kill the Spanish horses thinking they killed the enemy. But what happened was, after the horses were killed, the riders on the horse got up, took their crossbows, took their superior, superior military weaponry, and they went and killed the Mayans. In other words, the Mayans thought the horse was the enemy. So they shot the horse instead of the rider, which was the enemy. The horse was the means upon which the enemy used to fight the Mayans. But it wasn't the enemy the Mayans needed to fight in order to beat the enemy. It was the, not the horse. It was supposed to be the rider. They fought the wrong enemy. And we look at the 21st century America and we go like this and we say, what a bunch of morons. I mean, the, if that, I mean, they definitely, I hear that story, they were definitely like somewhere, I mean, they were just like nomadic. I mean, what's wrong with those people? I mean, we, we in America would definitely not do something that stupid. <laughs> Except we do. And the sad part about this is that quite oftentimes that's exactly what the church does. Here's America, the Mayan culture. Strong military power. Educational systems, Prince and Yale and Harvard. I mean, people come here to get intellectual understanding. They come here to find jobs and opportunity, right? I mean, this is the, the it's an agricultural society. It's the farmland. It's cattle. It's all the, a land of opportunity. People come here to get careers and find status and find, find fame. There's freedom in America. There's all these different things in America. And so you would think that as, as America has all this skilled culture, they build like Aztec temples called skyscrapers and stadiums and all these big buildings, you would think that people like that were comprehensive enough to know that they wouldn't get tricked by some enemy coming in and they would fight the wrong enemy. Not, not America. And yet that's what exactly happens. Because when you still see that suicide rate is 50,000 people a year and the number one, the second leading cause of death among teenagers from 15 to 24 is suicide. And when 52 million people have mental health problems and drug overdoses are an epidemic, people dying every day with all the sophisticated culture that we have, you wouldn't think we keep getting defeated, but we keep getting defeated. And I would submit to you, it's because America fights the wrong enemy. You see... Jesus defined for us who the enemy actually was. He tells us in uh, Luke chapter 10, verse 17 through 19. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you the authority to tread on serpents and scorpions. Notice this. And over all the power of the enemy. Who is the enemy? The devil. And nothing shall hurt you. Listen to what he was saying in the parable in Matthew 13, 37 through 39. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. And the field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. Do you catch that? There's the definition of the enemy, the devil. Well, does he like to fight more? Of course he does. Revelation 12, 17. Then the dragon became furious with the woman 
and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Now, who's got it wrong? Jesus or America? Because what's happened is that although our enemy is defined for us from Scripture, now think about this, here's the creator of the universe who designed us and knows us better than we know ourselves and knows everything about the world, I would think that he knows who our actual enemy is. But what's happened in a narcissistic, pessimistic, sophisticated culture, post-enlightenment, scientific gurued, medically crazed, pill-popping counseling training culture that's anti-supernatural, of course then, the enemy can't be the enemy no more. So then who's the enemy? One, two options. It's either you or the, you've got all the problems that happen to you have to be you. Or it's got to be somebody else that caused the problems for you. You can't be, there's no God and no Satan, no demons. So then the problem has to be the enemy is within you. You are the problem or it's somebody else. What a clever trick of the devil. I mean, wouldn't it be amazing if a criminal can break into your house to steal your goods? And he walks in and says, uh, uh, no, 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 don't, don't, don't shoot me. You're the thief. No, you, you're the one who bought the house in the first place. So take the gun. Yeah, there you go. Turn around. Bam. Gotcha. Thank you. Now I can steal. Now, how stupid is that? But that's what America does. That's what the devil's done with America. Let's take the let's take the let's let's take the word of God, which is the ammo to shoot the enemy with. Let's pervert it backwards, and let's let, let's let's call, all the problems are with us or somebody else. And so the enemy, the, the attack, the wrong enemy is being attacked. So here's how this happens. I think this happens sometimes in a mental health field. This may make some people angry. Sorry about that, but I'm going to tell you the truth anyway. Fifty-two million people in America, are all on all these meds, bipolar, schizophrenia, um, antidepressants, um, personality disorders, nightmares attack, um, uh, panic attacks, and all these different depressions. So our culture says, well, there can't be no God. There's no God. There's no Satan. So, um, sorry, it's a problem with your own brain, your own personality, or it's something within you that can't change, and you're stuck like this for the rest of your life. So then as a result of that then, people think, there's no hope. I can't, this is all has to do with me. But I want you to see what happened with Jesus one time. In Mark chapter 5, there was a man who was possessed by a bunch of demons, right? It said that he would cut himself with stones, he would run away naked, uh, when even Jesus asked for his name, it said that his name was Legion. That's multiple personality disorder. He was in the tombs naked by himself. Now, you take that modern man into the first century, in, in, the, in the 21st century, that guy would, would blow out the DSM-4 mental health book. Everybody would say, this guy's got all these problems, get him to the psych ward. But Jesus walks up to the man, and he doesn't treat the man as the enemy. He doesn't say, what's wrong with you, you nutcase? Get to the psycho house. He walks up to the man and deals with the enemy in the man who was the source of the man's problems and said, what's your name? And as a result of that, as a result of that the demon in the man manifests, shows itself the reality of what was actually in the man, causing the mental health problems within the man. So Jesus takes the man who's not the enemy and deals with the real enemy, which was Satan behind the man, and gives the man freedom. Amen. How about emotional health? 
Sometimes we fight the wrong enemy there too, right? Yep. One of the greatest problems with American is, is narcissism. Now, narcissism means pride stuck on yourself. And so narcissism says, I'm king, I'm God. You can find every root of every single uh, sin problem goes back to the fact that man thinks that he is king. He's Lord. He's, he's the savior of his own life. Yep. So here we take drug addicts who are narcissists that say, I got to smoke this dope, do these drugs to satisfy myself. And so the, the state comes along and says, we got the solution to that problem. Let's stick him in jail for 50 years of their life. Let's restrict their behavior. And that's going to change them. We're going to finally resolve the problem. You know what that's like? Taking a lion and sticking it in its cage and said, see, you can't eat this bunny no more. We got you. You can't. We finally tamed the lion. We got him. Let the lion out after 50 years. He not only eats the bunny, he eats you too. You've just restricted the behavior. You haven't changed the behavior. But that is what we do in America. We say with all these, with all this problem, these, let's, let's restrict it. Let's pass laws and medication. Let's give bills to restrict the behavior. But you haven't, all you've done is just restricted it. Yep. You haven't changed it. But isn't it interesting that when the Bible talks about narcissistic people who have problems with their own pride that manifests out in a lot of ways, look how, look how um, James defines it. James chapter, I'm sorry. Yeah, look how James defines it. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, the epitome of narcissism in your hearts, do not boast because of the fa- and be false to the truth. He says, this is not wisdom. This, da- this thing comes down from above. It's earthly, unspiritual. And notice this, he says, it's demonic. Now, how many times do we ever associate emotional issues like pride or other stuff? That's just whatever. James says, that's demonic. That's demonic. How about this? Um, James 4, 4 through 7 would go on further and say, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it's to no purpose, the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit and has made uh, to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. And then it says this, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. What's the solution, James? Submit yourself to God if you're a narcissist and just resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Amen. Uh, Matthew 16, 22 through 23, Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him, saying in a narcissistic way, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. He turned to Peter and said, oh, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. But you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. Do you understand what I'm saying? When it comes to mental health and emotional health in America, we automatically think the person has to be the problem. Yep. Never thinking that maybe behind those problems is a source motivating the problem called demons yep. and the devil. Amen. Let me give you one more. Physical health. Okay, this is going to get right. We are quick to say that every headache... Every stomach ache, every pain in our body, doctors can fix it. Now, look, I get that. They do. They can. But you know, when I went to Africa, the first thing the guy told me there, he said, you're a stupid Westerner. I said, excuse me? He said, you're going to see things here that's going to happen here that you won't believe when you go back and tell the people in the West. First church I go to, a lady comes up and says, I got a headache. This is easy. Get some Tylenol. It's the American way to fix it, right? I go to pray for her. He grabs my hand and says, no, you don't pray for the headache. You pray for the demon behind the headache. I said, you got to be kidding me. I said, I don't know how to do this. You're going to have to do this. And so he did. About an hour later, after all kind of stuff, incredible manifestations, he said, the woman had been going to the witch doctor. The witch doctor had been giving her a chart. He pulled out all these things that he had got from her pocket. 
charms and potions. The witch doctor had been telling her, do all these things, it will solve your problems. She was inviting the spirits in, and they were causing further headaches. But we look at Matthew chapter 9, verse 32 through 33, as they were going away, behold, a demon-possessed man who was mute was brought to him, and the demon was cast out, and the mute man spoke. Ever consider the fact that muteness could be possibly caused by an enemy? Luke 10, Luke 13, 10 through 13. Now he was teaching in the synagogue on one of the Sabbaths, and behold, there was a woman who had been disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. And when Jesus saw her, he called her over and said, Woman, you're freed from your disability. And immediately the spirit left her and she was made straight. Amen. I mean, could it possibly be that some of the problems we face, even physically, not just emotionally and not just mentally, could have a deeper source behind it, a deeper enemy beneath it? Amen. See, I'm trying to set the context to you of how as American mindsets, we always just aim the enemy. We always just think, well, it's got to be you or it's got to be somebody else. And never thinking that maybe behind the scenes there is a source that's there that until that source is dealt with, the problem never goes away. Can I tell you what this is like? If I found a bunch of spiders in my basement and I called the Terminex guy over, I said, Mr. Terminex guy, can you come over and deal with the spiders? He says, sure, no problem. I'll be right over there. He walks in. He sees all the spiders and sees all the cobwebs. He says, I'll take care of this. I go upstairs. I come back down. All the cobwebs are gone, but the spiders are running around. I said, sir, uh, did you take care of the spider problems? He said, yeah, I took the cobwebs down. The cobwebs are, I didn't want you to take just the cobwebs down. Take the source of the cobwebs, the spiders, because the spiders cause the cobwebs. That's what I want out of here. If you just take the cobwebs down, the spiders make more of them. You need to deal with the spider and the cobweb won't come back. In America, we deal with people with cobwebs. We, see, we deal with the symptom of the problem, but we don't deal with the actual enemy source of the problem, which sometimes I think is the enemy, which is the devil. And so sometimes I think that America, sometimes we fight the wrong enemy. So in this text right here in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, I think that there's an important aspect about this first that Paul's trying to show us something about how to fight the right kind of enemy. And there's two things I want you to learn from this text. It's two, two, two things in regards to the sermon. First of all, this isn't a part of the point, but I, but I do want you to know that if you were to back up to verse 10, you're going to see the very first word that Paul uses to describe this section that he's about to be talking about here is the word finally. You guys see that in your Bible? He says, finally be strong. So, He starts this section talking about spiritual warfare by using the word finally. Now, that word finally is an important word because I think it means two words. It's it's important for two ways. First of all, it's a connective word that Paul is saying, after everything I've told you in Ephesians chapter 1 all the way to Ephesians chapter um, 5 verse 30, or actually chapter 6 verse 9, the first six chapters, everything I've told you, Ephesians, if you don't understand spiritual warfare, you won't be able to do the rest of them. So it's important what Paul's about to say here because as if he is saying that everything he's already told the Ephesians to do, so like he told them in Ephesians 4.23, have a renewed mind. He tells them, speak the truth to your neighbor. Don't steal no longer. No corrupt talk coming in your mouth. Be kind and tenderhearted. Put away sexual immorality. Use your time wisely. Have attitude of thanksgiving. Put away falsehood. Don't let the sun go down in your anger. Be honest and work with your hands. Put away bitterness and anger and wrath. Walk in love. Have no coarse joking, foolish talk. Don't get drunk with wine. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husband loves your wife. Husbands, sanctify your wife and cleanse her. Wives, respect your husband. 
Children obey your parents. Children honor your father and mother. Parents don't provoke your, provoke your children. Parents discipline and instruct your children. Bond servants obey your masters. Masters respect your bond servants. All of that what Jesus said. He's saying you can't do unless you understand spiritual warfare. Do you understand the importance of spiritual warfare in your life? You can have all the right doctrine, all the right kind of theology, but if you can't filter it through the lens and understand it's a war when you go to do that, you will not be able to make it. Me and Dan and, and Doc and Jeff, we've been working on my in-law's house, uh, connecting two grain bins into this house. And one of the first things that me, Dan, and Jeff did is that we had to connect all the, all, they had to stub up all the plumbing into the house and connect it back to the main pipe into the, going back into the septic. Now, if we just went from the septic and, and ran the main line and didn't take all of the other plumbing and connect it into the main line, we've got all the right plumbing possible. But if it's not connected to the main line, it's getting backed up and it's going to stink pretty bad. If you get all the book of Ephesians, you get all the memorize all of them, a child of God, I'm adopted, I'm chosen, you get all this stuff, and you don't get spiritual warfare, you're going to get backed up. And the Christian life isn't going to go too well for you. So first of all, the word finally, even before we get to this text, finally is a connective word, but it's also an eager word. And here's why I say that for, it's because the church teaches this as a meager word and not an eager word. The church comes to this and says, oh man, here we go, we got, we got to talk about this. I mean, let's, elders, let's meet before this and... Uh, pastors get up here and get real scared. I know I don't have to. Are you kidding me? Paul's not saying this. He's not going, oh, finally, I got to get to this. Man, here we go. That's the meager word. That's what most people do. Paul's more like this. Ah, after all that I've said, I finally get to talk to you about. That's more of the mindset. I finally get to talk to you about this. And here's why. Paul found out something. If you go back to Acts chapter 19, Acts chapter 19 is Paul's third missionary journey where he comes to the city of Ephesus some 10 years before he writes this letter. And the last time that he was in Ephesus, Paul found out that the power of Christ was sufficient enough to change the whole culture and nature of a wicked city like Ephesus. If you remember in Acts chapter 19, it says that Paul goes in there and he preaches that there was the seven sons of Sceva and all they, 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 the demon exorcists and they come out and they get beaten up. And then after that, Paul's preaching and it says that people begin to bring out all their magic books and their scrolls, 50,000, 50, like whatever many coins it was, and they all burn them in the city. And so Paul is trying to write Ephesians chapter 6 in the midst of a city that is full of magic and demons and sorcery to give them confidence to tell them, Hey, look, 10 years ago, I was in your same city. And if you do not think that the gospel is sufficient enough to change your city, I'm about to tell you the reality of a war you're about to engage in, that if you fight this way, you indeed will win. Amen. Let me just show you some pictures real quick, if you can put that up there. The, the people of Ephesus were facing things like the Temple of Artemis. The Temple of Artemis was in Ephesus. That was one of the seven wonders of the world. 500 feet long. 200 feet wide, 60 columns surrounding it, 60 feet high, where that god right there, Artemis, half naked, breasts exposed, she was the goddess of fertility, the goddess of the hunt. People would go in there and make chants, do potions, they would do all this kind of stuff in the city of Ephesus. Go to the next screen. In the same way in Ephesus, these are reproductions of what was actually there, you also have what's called the Celsus Library. That was a library full of uh, over 12,000 scrolls, 30,000 volumes of information used to be housed in Ephesus in that library. Then over here you have the great theater of Ephesus. We're in Acts chapter 19. It's a reprint of it. 
that seated 25,000 people where there were oratory speeches and there were all kind of stuff that would go on. And so you think about this. Paul is writing to a culture in Ephesians chapter 6 that is steeped in um, knowledge, entertainment, and idol worship and demons. How are this meager little church in Ephesus going to get past all of those things? And so Paul says, finally, I got something I want to talk to you. So this word finally is to tell them, hey, people of Ephesus, in this culture, idol worship, knowledge, entertainment, demons, I'm about to tell you something. I can't wait to tell you this. The last time I was there, I fought in the name of Jesus, and this demonic culture was won over by the power of Christ. And so I'm going to tell you, finally, the same secret that was for me, fighting Christ, wear the armor, you're going to win. He's here to tell them again. Finally, in a sense of, I'm excited about telling you this. Are you tracking with me? The word finally is not some, okay, Paul, here we go. I got to wrap this book up. Here we go. No, the word finally is, I can't wait to tell you this because I found something that worked for me and it's going to work for you Christians as well. And not just in Paul's day, but also in your day as well. Don't forget about it. Because, see, our idols look a little bit different, but they look like this. Same reason, same underlying format. You can go to the next screen. We may not have libraries, but we have Harvard University. We may not have the Ephesus Theater, but we've got the Indianapolis Colts. We may not have Artemis exposing her breast. We've got logos that express people doing movements that tell us what our idols are. We may not have a temple of Artemis, but we've got a government that's corrupt and supports things like this. So Paul says to the Ephesians, finally, I want to tell you something to overcome that culture. He says to us today, that word finally is still for you. Finally. This is not a meager word. This is an eager word. Amen. And that's why the church has become so plastic, I'm convinced, when it comes to spiritual warfare. It's because we've made this so meager and not eager. Paul made it meager, not, Paul made it eager, not meager. Now, real quickly, when it comes to this text, There are two important things I think Paul's trying to bring out for us to discern about the battle. Here's the first thing is this. First point. Discernment number one. If you face spiritual attack, it doesn't mean you're out of Christ. It signifies you're in him. Amen. Here's what I mean. Look in this text. Five times you'll find the word against. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers of present darkness, and against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Five times in one verse, Paul says, against. Now, when I was sitting under Dr. McDonald for four years of Fisherman's Paradise, one of the things I learned is that if a word is repeated, there is a certain theme that's trying to be brought across by that word. If I tell you, look at my wife. She's so beautiful. I love my wife. My wife is a great mom. My wife is a great cook. My wife is a great supporter of me. You'd say, okay, I get it. You love your wife. And I do, absolutely. But the fact that I talk about her, I mean, the fact that Paul's saying against five times is trying to get a point across about something. What's the point? Well, the word that's used here in the Greek language for the word against is the Greek word pros. That word for pros means to head towards something, to go near something. It signifies the idea of going near to something with the purpose of accomplishing a goal. Now, if you keep this verse in context... We're learning that the devil is going near towards somebody. Who's he going towards? Well, Paul says in verse 12, the beginning, for we do not. Well, who's the we that he's talking about? Pagan barbarians in the country somewhere? He's talking to the Christians, the church at Ephesus. In other words, Paul's saying, church at Ephesus? 
I know. Well, I'm trying to wrap it up. I'm not really, but I'm going to. I saw you. That's the, that's the bad part about sitting in the front row is that the preachers can't tell you looking at your watch. The worst thing to do. You're never going to invite me back again, I know. So the word for pros means to go towards something. Now, again, the context is that the devil is going against who? The we, which is the Christians. Why? Let me explain it to you this way. I didn't know when I first came to Jesus that when I got saved that it would be so hard on me. I was not told that. Yeah. I had mental attacks. I had attacks come against me physically and emotionally. I didn't have, I couldn't go to any church that one would tell me what was wrong with me. It was later on until I learned about spiritual warfare, what was, what was happening to me. If you find yourself going through some spiritual attacks today, may you understand that the spiritual attacks oftentimes authenticate your position in Christ. Here's what I mean. If the quarterback is sitting on the bench, there's no defensive line coming to get him. You know why? He's not in the game. If you're not in the game, the defensive line doesn't come to attack you. If you are a point guard and you're sitting on the bench, there's nobody wanting to guard you because you're the guy that's sitting on the bench. You know how you're in the game? It's that when you get the ball and they throw it to you, all these guys are trying to take you out. The taking of you out doesn't mean, man, I've lost the game, I'm out. It means you're in the game. When you're getting guarded with the basketball and you've got the ball, it doesn't mean that you're on the bench anymore. It means you're actually in the game and playing. Please understand that. When you get attacked by the enemy, it doesn't mean that you're out of the game. It actually means you're actually in Christ. And if you're not being attacked by the enemy in some ways, why do you still want to be a spiritual bench warmer for? Get off the bench and get in the game. And if you get in the game, you're going to find out the reality of this war. You see, the, the reality that you know that your garden is actually good and you've done well is that critters kind of try to come and take it because you've got fruit that's producing out of it. If there's, no produ- if there's no fruit in your garden, critters don't come. The fact that the critters come tells you that your garden's bearing fruit. And Jesus said, if you want to actually love me, the way you do that is that you bear fruit. Well, you bear fruit, demonic critters will come. Why? Because they want to take back that which God has given you, trying to disrupt your life. When I'm at my house... Oftentimes, I, will, I can tell when the mailman is coming because my dogs start to barking. Now, think about this. The mailman is there for one reason, to deliver an important information to me by way of mail. My dogs don't understand he's there to deliver mail. They think he's come to take their territory. They don't like the fact that he's coming onto their territory. So as a response of him coming onto their territory, as if they bark, they nip, and they get mad. But for the... but <clears throat> So if I hear... My dog's barking and nipping. I know there's a mailman that's coming on the way. When I hear people getting attacked by the enemy in the church, I don't say, oh, you poor person. I say, you're probably delivering spiritual mail. You're probably out evangelizing, aren't you? You're probably trying to share the gospel, aren't you? You're trying to probably be a spiritual mailman. You're trying to take the gospel because of the intensity and the position of which you're living like a mailman to a dog. Dogs don't like mailmen, although mailmen are trying to do good. Demons don't like Christians because Christians are trying to do good. And you'll find the spiritual dogs, demons, try to bark at you. Please understand, Paul says that this is against us, the we. Number one, spiritual attacks oftentimes indicate 
your position in Christ. Not that you're out, but that you're in him. You tracking with me? Number two is this. Last point. The devil oftentimes works through his attacks in disguise. Now, you might be surprised here in a minute what this disguise is. Paul tells us in this text... Um, there's so much to say, I'm going to have to leave a bunch out. That's the problem I have, try to start to saturate so much stuff and then where to leave out. So it probably fails every preaching class, so I'm glad you guys aren't grading. I hope not, but it is what it is. Devil operates in disguise, number two. How do you get that, Brent? Well, he tells us here who the battle's against. He says it's not against flesh and blood. He, gets, he says it's against rulers. The word for rulers there means chief and beginning he says it's against authorities. The word there for, in the Greek is exousia, which means uh, someone who has a dominion, someone who is empowered, someone who tries to take authority. Uh, world forces of darkness, their skotos, means a physical and moral absence of light. Their spiritual forces of evil, the word there for evil in the Greek is paneria, which means a lack, excuse me, a lack in moral, ethical, social, uh, depraved, and iniquity. So, um, on Paul... I know there's a long debate. Is, this, is Paul talking about a hierarchy of demons here? He may be, but I think even deeper than that, he's trying to describe the nature of how the demons work. Uh, rulers and powers describe their, their nature. Uh, darkness describes their character. And the spiritual force of evil is their purpose. So if you combine it together, these are strong forces that want to dominate and control, that are full of evil and, and darkness, that seek to do evil. This kind of sums up who demons are. But that's not the focus. My focus is that how then do those spiritual forces of darkness who are evil, powers and authorities, operate? Because it would make it a lot easier if they just came down and showed themselves to us and looked scary like Dracula and Frankenstein. I'd say, yeah, that's them. But I think that if you listen to what Paul says here, he shows us a way oftentimes we don't discern how he works. And he has to say it through the form of, you are not fighting flesh and blood. Now, wait a second, Paul. Why are you having to tell them that the devil that they're not fighting against flesh and blood for? Well, because I truly believe that one of the greatest ways the devil disguises himself to attack you and I is not just mentally, not just emotionally, not just in our dreams. But I would say the number one way that the devil oftentimes attacks us is through other people coming at you. If he can put himself inside of other person, he can disguise himself much cleverly that way. Because another person doesn't look like a demon. But through that person who looks good, looks respectable, what they say can be demonic. Yep. So I think Paul's trying to teach us here that our war is not against flesh and blood in the sense of, and by the way, he's not trying to say here that your sin, that your sin nature doesn't, have a pro, doesn't get intertwined with, he's already talked about the sinful man. When he says flesh and blood here, he's talking about human beings. So what, what I think that Paul's trying to indicate here is that the Ephesian church is having a problem attacking each other, getting mad at each other. If you go back in Ephesians, he, has, he says to him, hey, don't lie, uh, be forgiving, love one another. husbands, love your wives, wives, love your husbands, kids, don't get mad, obey your parents. Why are you having to say that for? Because there must have been a problem with people attacking each other in the church of Ephesus that Paul has to say, "Stop! wait, wait a second, the problem is not against flesh and blood, the problem is against the demons. The problem was that the demons were working through the people, but they were attacking the people and not the demons. Amen. Do you understand that? I hope we can recognize that because oftentimes we don't see that. When your wife gets incredibly ticked at you for not taking the trash out or gets upset with you because she's just had a terrible day, 
Your natural response will be like the Ephesians. You will want to lash out. And Paul said, remember, it's not against flesh and blood. When your co-worker at work walks in and says something ridiculously stupid to you and you want to punch him right in the face and break his nose, if you can remember that it's not, it's, it, it, there's, there's something else that's behind that. It's deeper than that. You see, because I think our problem is that most of the time, whether it's our wife, our kids, our co-workers, our pastors, or even our church people we handle, every word that comes out of their mouth, every backstab that comes from them, everything they put on Facebook, every lying email they send, every gossip they say about us, we have the tendency to think, you're the enemy, which plays right into the enemy's hands. When I go turkey hunting, I always make sure to take my decoy with me. When I set the decoy out, then I hide in the woods. If I sat out in the field and said, come here, turkeys, let me shoot you, they would know that it's me. But if I put a turkey out there that looks like, moves like, and I sound like him, it works much easier to bring him in. Because you see, if I put a tom out in the field, another tom comes in thinking that I'm going to beat this one up because he's taking my hen. So if I can look like a tom, sound like a tom, disguise myself as a tom, I can get the other toms to come in. The problem with that is that he doesn't know that the problem is not the tom, the problem is me. And if I can get him to fight the Tom, I can kill him because then he comes up close to me. The enemy would like to do nothing more than to get you and I to conflict with each other, yep. flesh and blood, instead of fighting the actual enemy. Amen. There's so many ways that we can take that passage, I guess. But from what I have seen is that the greatest Jesus said all men will know you're my disciples if you love one another. Unity. That's the only time in the Bible he said, if you do something, you will know you're my disciples. Unity. Well, then it's no wonder that Satan disguises himself in people, which bring unity, to create disunity, so that the one thing that Jesus said, if you do it, people will know you, it won't get known by. He's a clever deceiver. If you're being attacked tonight, don't be ashamed of it. I mean, for, if sin doors, that's one thing. But if you're facing a spiritual battle, doesn't mean you're out. It means you're in. Number two, he oftentimes will disguise himself. And typically some of the greatest ways he describes yourself, disguises himself is by the people in this room sitting beside you, sometimes with words and actions and behaviors. Don't fight the wrong battle. Fight the right one. It's not against flesh and blood. So then how do you, real quickly, how do you resolve that? Next time you're with someone and they hurt you, First of all, perceive what's going on. Secondly, pray for them. Third, be patient with them. Four, preach to them. Share with them. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, your text. I thank you for your word. It's a reminder for me, Lord, of how easy it is to fall short of this. But I thank you, God, for this word. I thank you that you have given us the blueprint that our spiritual battles, especially against other people a lot of times, it's not just the enemy. It's not just them. We try to shoot at them. But, Lord, oftentimes human beings are the avenue upon which the enemy disguises itself through to accomplish this purpose. May we have spiritual attuneness and awareness to know that, whether it's with our wife, our kids, coworkers, people at church, that a lot of the source behind a lot of problems is not just them. It's an enemy source inspiring it within them. And if we could see that, Lord, then maybe we can handle people in situations differently than what we usually do help us to be aware of this lord help us to understand this help us to apply this in jesus name amen
Yeah, yeah. Surprise, surprise. Well, you've heard from Pastor Mitch here uh, about who the devil is. And you've heard from Brent tonight about how we discern the battle that we're in. And I, I think both of these guys did an excellent job. Uh, God is good. And he, amen. All the time. God is good. But it should foster some questions within us. Our minds should be working on what we just heard and formulating some things. Even if you, even if you think you understand it, if you want it clarified, um, you got Mitch and, and uh, Dan and myself. Brent's a little busy at the moment, but uh, you can you can you know shoot your question to us, and we'll do our very best to give you an answer. Yeah. So if, if any of you have questions, uh, speak up. If uh, if you don't want to do that and and you would like a question answered, you can. Uh, I'll stand back there in the back and and uh, you know you can come and kind of tell me what it is you want to ask. And I can do that. Um, so I just open it up to you guys right now. Is there is there any questions you have on what you've heard tonight so far? Yes, right back here. It's kind of more of a statement. It's, it's sure. agreement with Mitch on the idea of after the fall and Satan. Yes. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, very true. I'd like to add one more to Mitch's list. There is greed. Yes. Uh, you look, you look around you, and, and what is it that promotes so much of these other things? Is greed for for more, for more yeah. of whatever it is. It doesn't matter if it's power or money or looks or fame or what it might be it's it's lust greed for more in our country the u.s as as brent was talking about here in in america we we want to foster a, a system where we blame everybody else and we trample over everybody else to get what we want and we don't we've got where we don't care about each other anymore we don't love each other like he was talking about you know in the the scriptures there where he was telling them, you got to love each other. you got to care for each other. you got to take care of each other. So so that's where we're at there. Thank you for your, your statement. Anybody else got anything they'd like to say, a question or anything? Yeah, back here, Penny. I have a question. Uh-huh. Okay, ancestral sin is really no different than any other sin, but what an ancestral sin is, first of all, in case anyone in here doesn't know, uh, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, we're told that the sins of the fathers were visited, uh, the sins of the sons visited the fathers for the third, or third and fourth generation. Okay, so what that means is, is that the pattern of disobedience is taught to the next generation through the actions, not the words, but the actions of the parents. 
And it sometimes takes as many as three or four generations, sometimes more, sometimes less. All, it, it, it all is up to God. But it takes that long for someone to get back into the good graces of God, to get it right, to confess it, and, and to deal with it. Now, if it gets caught... Uh, and someone is, because ancestral sin, like any other sin, is a doorway that you open. The, the Bible speaks of giving the, the devil a foothold or a toehold. Some uh, say a toehold. But uh, the, way I, the way I always uh, explain that, the way I always think of it is, is how many of you have ever had a, a traveling salesman come to your door? <laughs> and you go to close the door, and what do they do? Stick that foot right in the door. You can't close the door, and you're trying to. Well, when we sin, if we don't fix it immediately when we become aware of it, that devil just sticks his foot right in that doorway and holds it open and tries to keep you from closing it. Now, if we, if we confess and repent, we can get his foot out of the way. But if we let it go then he just keeps inching that door open wider and wider and wider and wider until he can just walk in and have his way uh, in, in that area of your life where you've sinned, okay? That doesn't mean he can control you. doesn't mean that he possesses you and takes you over. It means that he can torment you in that one area. Uh, you know, I can give you an example is that I was molested as a child, and later on, I molested my nephew as a result of that. And the devil stayed right in my face with that until I finally went to my adult nephew, confessed, and asked his forgiveness, and dealt with it. That shut the devil down immediately. He had nothing more he could say. Why? Because there was no more secrets. There's no more lies. It shut the door. Now, that's where uh, this, this generational sin is dealt with in the same way, Penny, is that once you have, uh, you have an idea that it is a generational sin... With all sin, with all demonic uh, influence, you have to be able to find the root cause. You have to be able to talk and logic through logic and reason and find out where that door was opened. And then you can find, once you know what caused the door to open, it's, it's actually a legal contract. When we sin, we're actually making a contract with the devil saying, okay, now you have authority over this area of my life. And we have to actually cancel that contract with the blood of Jesus. We have to confess it. We have to uh, repent of it. And we have to literally say, Lord, cancel this contract that I have made with the devil by opening that door, by being a, a, a person who has opened and, and written a contract with the devil by allowing him to have influence over my life. You know, uh, another thing 
is that for years and years, as a result of what happened to me as a child, I had a problem with porn. And until I canceled that contract and had it cleansed by the blood of God, by the blood of Jesus, it tormented me and hounded me. The devil still tries to put images back in my mind from those days. But all I have to do now that I've been cleansed, now that I've confessed it, now that those secrets are gone, all I have to say is shut up. Go back to hell, Satan, where you belong. Take your pictures with you. <laughs> I, 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 and, you know, any, any demon, demonization, that's the way we deal with it, is we have to find out what caused that area to be open to be demonized in the first place. Then we can deal with it. We have to confess it. We have to repent of it. And we have to ask Christ to, to cancel the contract and to cleanse us of that stain and to uh, send the demon away from us in the name of Jesus, and then we're free. We're free. Amen. Good question. Anybody else? Yeah. Yes. On that note, um, sometimes they call it generational curses. Uh huh. Well, when you're out in the secular world, nobody wants to hear about curses or sins. That's true. You just get left out in the West Plains somewhere. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, they would call it a generational habit or, you know, a learned behavior like you said. But, again, that's what, uh, you know, Brent was talking about is you have to understand. You have to have the discernment to be able to see, is this a cause from a demon or is it a cause from a natural source? There are external, you know, we have three enemies, the world the flesh, the world, and the devil, okay? The, the flesh gives us internal. Uh, it's an internal type of, of suffering. Uh, the devil, he uses the world to cause those sufferings, whether it's internal or external, and the world is an external type of, of temptation, an external type of suffering. So, you know, you, once you know what type of, of suffering it is, that helps you to also to then locate and determine, is this uh, being something that's going on into me internally, in my mind, in my heart, bitterness, hatred, unforgiveness, that sort of thing, or is this something that's going on externally? My back hurts, my head hurts, uh, my, uh, you know, my eyes, I can't keep them off of looking and lusting, my, uh, you know, whatever the case might be. So you have these different things that we have to look at. There is, there is logic and there is reason within that. But when you try to get reason and logic from a demon, that's not going to happen. They don't use logic. They don't use reason. They use bitterness and hatred. They're very illogical. Uh, you know, uh, why would you put sugar in somebody's gas tank when they openly berated you in front of your friends. Well, that's a demonic thing to do. It's a cowardly thing to do. But if you were 
being open and honest, uh, you would address what they were saying to you at the moment to their face, the same as they did with you, and then you would say, however, I forgive you. That's the Christian way. And then it's done, and it's over. It's, it's finished. All right, A- anything else? Yes, unforgiveness is a big one. I mean, Jesus is. Yes. Amen. And, and where did that bitterness come from and that unforgiveness? Where does it come from? It comes from what Brent was dealing with tonight. It, it, yeah, it comes from pride. It comes from arrogance. It comes from uh, us fighting the wrong enemy. He causes us to be, to be angry at someone instead of looking beyond them. And, you know, Brent gave one of the best examples that I've ever known in the scripture where Jesus said, get thee behind me, Satan. He didn't say, get thee behind me, Peter. He said, get thee behind me, Satan. He's making a very, uh, a, a very distinct statement. He's not saying, you're the problem, Peter. He's saying, Satan is using you to be a problem. And that's where he's shutting him down. But if we don't look at it that way, if we don't discern, as Brent taught us very well tonight, then we end up with this bitterness we end up with this unforgiveness towards this person who was really just a pawn in the hands of a demon. Anything else? Does anybody feel like you're, you're, you're gaining anything tonight? Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Well... If there's no more questions, no more comments. I just hope they all took notes because, you know, the quiz we're going to give them later. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we did forget to tell you about that, didn't we? <laughs> <laughs> well, I handed out all the notebooks, you know. I mean, we've got to fill this thing up. And... Yeah, pop quiz. Yeah. We, we say quiz, you pop us. <laughs> all right, then. Well, uh, Doc, you guys want to give us a little, yeah. little worship here? Amen. Amen. like what Brent said this evening when when you know you're in the game is when you're seeking the kingdom of God and and in pursuit of holiness so tonight it's befitting to sing about seek ye first the kingdom of God amen Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added. 
up here to send us out in prayer, I'll, I guess I'll do it. Heavenly Father, thank you for allowing us to have this time to focus on conflict in the spiritual realm of existence. Lord, we, we thank you for your holiness that we're able to discern what is good and what is evil. Dear Lord, I pray that the rest of this conference, that we're able to gear ourselves be better equipped, not only in doctrine, but also in spirit, that we may do the will that comes from you, that we may combat Satan and the demons, and bring the glory all to you for the advancement of the gospel. It's in your name that we pray, amen.